Thank you, everybody, for joining us. I'm Father Chris Alar, one of the Marians of the Immaculate Conception here at the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy. As we are continuing our seminary series, you guys are all ready to get your certificates as being fully educated because I'm throwing everything at you. And uh, today, as you saw on the title slide, we're going to be talking about Mary Magdalene. Talk about one of the most misunderstood saints and even into the Da Vinci Code, completely misunderstood. So we want to help clarify her role and what she can do and why she's so important in our faith. So reason we do it is next week, July 22nd, is her feast day. So I'm trying to pick these talks to match the timing of the church calendar. Let us start with a prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask through the intercession of St. Mary Magdalene that we be purified of all of our attachments that we may be cleansed and, and prepared to enter into heaven and through her intercession to be penitent, a, a good penitent, and to confess and to turn from our, our ways back to you, O Lord. And we ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So you saw on your slide... This is Mary Magdalene. Now, the Bible mentions certain women who followed Jesus. A lot of women, Joanna, Susanna, several Marys, Salome. Let's look at our next slide. Here's a picture that Jesus had a different attitude towards women than the culture of the time. The culture of the time gave no social status to women. In fact, the rabbis even refused to teach women and assign them a much inferior place in society. And so this was interesting that the four Gospels, that in these four Gospels, Jesus's enemies were all men. All of them. Jesus never had a female enemy that's ever mentioned in the Gospels. I thought that was interesting. I think it's mostly from pride. Even the apostles, when Jesus called them, first cared about their status and position. Who's the greatest? Come on, Lord, tell us. Who's the greatest? So, so I think we have a lot to learn, but these women were happy to serve quietly. They were behind the scenes. They gave generously out of the resources. A lot of people don't realize Jesus accepted support, financial support. You know, we've had some brothers here in the past, most of them are gone now, that are saying we absolutely can't accept one thing of support. Well, we have to. We, we, we got to eat. We, we, you know, we got to have electricity or we wouldn't be coming to you. And so Jesus accepted this from the hearts of people like you. And a lot of them, most of Jesus's funding for his ministry came from women. Very interesting. This is why the gospel honors these women and they imitated Jesus in serving rather than being served. So let's look at our next slide. Now here is Mary Magdalene. She was one of the keys. Do you know that she's mentioned in all four gospels 12 times more than most apostles? She's mentioned more than most of the apostles, 12 different times, all the gospels. She was one of the women who accompanied Jesus and the apostles. It tells us in Luke 8, quote, the 12 accompanied him and also some women. I'm reading right from the gospel here, Luke 8. And some women who had been cured of evil spirits 
in Miletus, Mary called the Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out. Gospel of Mark also confirms this. So Mary Magdalene, who is she? Well, she was at the foot of the cross during the crucifixion. We hear about that in Matthew, Mark, and John. She also witnesses Christ's burial. What an amazing honor. And on Easter, she was the first to discover the empty tomb and then the first to see the risen Lord, John chapter 20. That right there makes her an incredible intercessor for you. Help me see Jesus. You know, in our lives all the time, we're asking, how do I know what God's will is in my life? Have you prayed and asked for the intercession of Mary Magdalene to help you see Jesus? Ultimately, she's praying for us. We're not praying to her. We're not worshiping either Mary here. We're, we're asking, she was the first one ever to see the resurrected Jesus. She can help you see him too. It's her prayers. Now, not because we're praying to her as a deity. All right, now, Magdalene comes from the word, it's not her last name. People think it's Mary Magdalene, her last name. No, it comes from Magdala, which was a city along the Sea of Galilee a wealthy city. And this wealthy city is where the Romans destroyed it because of their moral depravity. Interesting, huh? We think of Sodom and Gomorrah, but actually the Romans destroyed Magdala from which her name comes because of their moral decay. So it's interesting that also in the Talmud, the word Magdalene, listen to this, is derived, or from it is derived the expression curling a woman's hair. That means adulteress. Now, please don't send me the letters on that. I am not telling you if you curl your hair that you are an adulteress. Please, please don't tell my superiors I said that. It's a word that derived from it. And that is what the whole big picture is that we're going to unpack today. I think it's very interesting. Now, take a look here. In the Gospels, there are three characters of interest. I'm going to do you a little Bible study today. Stay with me. There's going to be, this is going to be the toughest part of the talk. If you can get through this part, if you can hang with me through the next few minutes, you'll get through the rest of the talk. Quite interesting with Da Vinci Code. First half will be Mary Magdalene. Second half will be Da Vinci Code. Now, there are three particular characters that we want to talk about here. Mary Magdalene is mentioned by name that she followed Jesus. This is John 20, verses 11 through 18. It's where she saw the open tomb. Jesus appeared to her and said, Mary. And she says, Rabboni, Rabboni. So she's mentioned by name there. But we also have the anonymous woman who repented in Luke chapter 7, okay, 36 through 50, of her sins, anointed our Lord's feet and dried it with her hair, Right? Now, there's also the Mary of Bethany. Remember Lazarus, who Jesus rose from the dead, and it was Martha and Mary. If you're a hard worker and you're always doing something, people call you a Martha. If you're more a contemplative prayer person and you like to stay in the chapel, you're more a Mary. So this was the Mary we're talking about. This was the sister of Martha and Lazarus, and this was Luke chapter 10, verse 38 to 42. Now, Here's why I bring all this up. 
in the West, where remember, we're the Western church, Pope Gregory the Great believed all three of those were Mary Magdalene. Even though only one mentions the name Mary Magdalene, the other woman who washed his feet in the home of Simon the Pharisee believed was Mary Magdalene. And then Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, he believed was Mary Magdalene. Now let's talk about this. Now in the East, they keep them separate. In the Eastern Orthodox and Eastern Church, um, Mary Magdalene and Mary of Bethany, the one I talked about, are separate. They have separate feast days. But why would Pope Gregory fuse these characters together? Let's take a look. Our next slide. All right. Our next slide. Let's start with John 20. This is the empty tomb. Let's start with who we know is Mary Magdalene because it says it right in the Bible, it's Mary Magdalene. There she is at the tomb on your screen. Now, Mary Magdalene is mentioned by name, so we know this is her for sure. She was also, that's the easy one. So you know what, I'm not even gonna, we'll talk about that one later. Let me, let me put that one on the shelf, empty tomb coming up in a minute. Let's go to the next one. Was she also the penitent woman found in Luke seven that was in the home of Simon the Pharisee? And wipe Jesus's feet. All right, next slide. <clears throat> Remember the penitent woman when she entered the home of Simon the Pharisee, she wept and her tears fell upon Jesus's feet. She washed his feet with her tears and perfumed oil and dried them with her hair. Now, what happened? Do you remember what Simon the Pharisee did? He said, huh, this guy's not a prophet. Talking about Jesus, remember, and he thought it. Jesus knew his thoughts, right? Because Jesus said, Simon, I have something to talk to you about. Simon's like, whoa. What did Simon think? Simon said, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this was that touches him. She is a sinner. So this is what Simon's thinking as this woman's wiping Jesus' feet. It's obvious reference to the fact that she's untouchable because he says Jesus, if he was a prophet, would know who's touching him. So basically it's telling him, the Simon is telling us that this woman's untouchable. What does that mean? Sexual sin. That was a euphemism. If somebody was untouchable, it means they were, you can't touch them. Now you think of leper, that's true in one way. But it meant a sexual sin. Yet Jesus forgives her. All right. One of the most common sins that we hear in the confessional are sexual sins. And so Jesus is saying, even you come to me, I will forgive. But we have to come to him. So soon after this, Mary Magdalene is mentioned now by name again, not just at the tomb by name, but she's mentioned by name as a follower of Jesus from whom seven de devils were cast out. Luke 8, verse 1 through 3. Okay, so here you have this woman that anoints, who's doing a sexual sins or had been guilty of sexual sins, and then right after it, the Bible mentions by name Mary Magdalene of whom seven demons were cast out. So Mary Magdalene is mentioned on John and the tomb by name and where seven demons were cast out by name. Let's make this connection even deeper. Now, let's look at our next slide. Is Mary Magdalene the same as Mary of Bethany, the third one, which is Martha and Mary, sisters of Lazarus, Luke 10. 
Now, to answer this, this is why I loved my scripture classes. If you have friends, especially Protestants, that isolate Bible verses, and we all know them, they'll send you an isolated Bible verse, and everything will be focused on that isolated Bible verse. You can't do that. You have to read the Bible as an entire context. The other scriptures, if you do that, the Bible contradicts itself. The Bible will contradict. It looks like it has apparent contradictions. We'll talk later. Did, was there an angel at the empty tomb or a man? Because in one scripture, it says it's an angel. In another scripture, it says it's a man. Which one is true? In John, it's just Mary Magdalene. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's three women. Which one's true? This is what we're going to talk about. You have to take it all in context. So to understand if Mary Magdalene is the same Mary as the sister of Lazarus and Martha, you got to go back to John, John 12, verse 1 through 11. Jesus arrived at Bethany, the village of Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Now, Martha served a meal. Remember, Martha's the worker. Definitely, I'm accused of being a Martha. And Mary, which I need to be more like, is the prayerful one. Mary anointed the feet of Jesus, just like back in Luke at Simon's house, the Pharisee. But here she does it with perfume and drives his feet also with her hair. It's a different event, but it's the same action. It's an anointing by a penitent woman. And it is, it's basically different from the Simon, the Pharisee example, which was back in Luke 7. But it's the same kind of action, which helps us to suggest it may be the same person. She did it in the same way. Now, here's another interesting fact. In John 11, which was just earlier to John 12, this is interesting. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And here's what it says in the gospel. John 11, verse 1 and 2. There was a certain man named Lazarus who was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus was sick, was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and dried his feet with her hair. Now, which event are they talking about? The one I first read you back in Luke or the one that's coming up in John 12? Well, it doesn't make sense that it's just going to be a separate one coming up in John 12, or you wouldn't have bothered to mention her in John 11 because it's coming up. He said it's the same one that already anointed. In John 12, she hadn't anointed yet. But in Luke 7, she had anointed. So if you believe the scriptures, if you do, here Mary is identified as the one who anointed the Lord. So some speculate that this was the same woman. So this refers to a similar action. If this holds, then Mary Magdalene, the penitent woman, and Mary of Bethany are all the same. This has been church teaching Gregory said this is why Mary Magdalene is so important. And this is why she has her own feast day on July 22nd. Okay, now that you got all the Bible study done, <laughs> let's get into the meaning of what you want to learn about Mary. All right, Bible study's over. Now, what is the essence of this? Archbishop Roque says, this Mary Magdalene, seeks to reflect more deeply on three things, the dignity of women, the new evangelization, 
evangelization and the greatness of God's mercy. Wow, think about those three things. The dignity of women, everybody thinks that should happen. Evangelization is required for your salvation and divine mercy you have to accept in order to get to heaven. These are three huge things. And this, this basic saint is telling you everything. Why the dignity of woman? Because you know what? If the apostles were going to steal the body and set up a witness, it wouldn't have been a woman. In order for a, a, an event to be viewed as, as true, it had to be a man witness. Now, if Jesus and his disciples had rigged this, they would have never picked a woman witness. She didn't hold any power in court. So this is raising the dignity of women. What about evangelize? She was the first one to say he is risen. What are we saying in Easter? He is risen. This is important because she was the first to proclaim it, the first to see it. She was the first evangelizer. So you want to learn how to evangelize? Follow the example of Mary Magdalene. And then third, divine mercy. Why? Because she's all three of those women who needed mercy. The penitent woman that washed the feet of Jesus begged for mercy. Mary Magdalene was the one who casted out the demons or uh, Jesus casted out the demons. She needed mercy. We have very much the fact that she's a witness to mercy because she was a sinner. This is the message. Now, let's look at our next slide. What kind of woman was she? All right, she wasn't just a sinner. She was a saint. Every sinner, every saint is, has a little bit of each other. All right, every saint has a past. Every sinner has a future. All right, now, John 20 is the, one of the few places in the Bible where someone encounters an angel without being afraid. Why wasn't Mary afraid? Well, because she was so focused on Jesus. She wasn't thinking of herself or, oh my gosh, is this angel going to hurt me? She was 100% focused on Jesus. And so this is one of the things. She even took the message to Peter, showing he's the head of the apostles still. She left behind. She was left behind. Even though they raced into the tomb, she was left way behind, but she kept coming. Why? Love. And then she's trying to figure out how to get the body. She says, just show me where the body is. I'll take him away. How is she going to take him away with 100 pounds of spices? The shroud estimates that the body in the shroud, Jesus weighed 175 pounds. So science has looked at the body on the shroud of Turin and estimated that Jesus weighs 175 pounds. Now, on top of that, you had 100 pounds of spices. That's 270 pounds, 75 pounds. And Mary Magdalene says, I'll take him away. <laughs> That shows faith, all right? She just wanted to love. Remember, Jesus told Blessed Consolata Bertone, you worry only about loving me and I'll take care of everything else to the smallest detail. You worry? Do you have worries every day? Do you worry how this is gonna get done, that's gonna get done, and you don't have time for your prayers? Jesus said, you worry only about loving me and I will take care of everything else to the smallest detail. All right, now, Mary Magdalene stood whooping, weeping at the tomb. Let's look at our next slide. There's Mary at the tomb. She was weeping and she heard the whole desire was to find out where they took him, where they took the body. Now, Jesus calls her by name. Jesus says, Mary, she says, Rabboni. And so basically here, 
If we simply seek the Lord, that's all Mary Magdalene's doing here. You want to know the key to sainthood? The key to sainthood isn't, oh, I looked at that on, on the internet or, oh my gosh, I had one too many drinks at dinner tonight. The key to sainthood is seeking Jesus, not beating ourselves up. Yes, we have to follow the commandments, but we will find him. This will allow us to recognize him and he will call us by name. Jesus said to Mary, don't touch me. Okay, this is interesting. Why did Jesus tell Mary Magdalene, don't touch me? But right afterwards, he told Thomas, touch me. You ever think about that? Oh, it must be a sexist thing of the Roman Catholic Church. No, it's not. There's a couple different reasons here. All right, now the first many scholars believe that Jesus said that because he's saying, listen, don't cling to me. The word touch is actually cling. Don't hold me. Don't detain me. I got to go see my brothers before I ascend to the Father. So the reason he said don't detain me is I got to go. I have a mission here because St. Thomas is going to doubt and I need to show him. So that's some scholars hold that opinion. But you know, another opinion that I hold that's fascinating one of the reasons maybe Jesus told Mary Magdalene not to touch him was her hands were not consecrated. Who has consecrated hands? The priest. And after the Last Supper, who were the 12 apostles? The priests. So he may have told St. Mary Magdalene, don't touch me. Her hands weren't consecrated. And yet Thomas's were. So he could say, touch me. So there's a couple different views there. All right. And I think this is very, very, very important. All right. Now, is there a contradiction? Oh, the Bible's full of them. Father Chris. All right. Do you know that uh, John says that only Mary Magdalene was at the tomb, but the other gospels say three other women were there. I want to explain something right now about contradictions in the Bible. You'll find a million of them. Does that mean the Bible isn't true? No. Okay. This is so important. Many non-Catholics and even non-Christians will criticize the Bible because facts seem to appear different. Let me, give you, let me give you a point. If we were all down at the street corner today and there were 12 of us walked down to go to lunch at the Red Lion Inn and we're all talking at the corner and all of a sudden a traffic accident happens and two cars hit each other. All 12 of you are from this congregation. You're all honest people. None of you are lying. None of you are trying to hurt one of the people because you know them. Nobody knows who the two people were in the accident. The police interview all 12 separately. Do you think every single one of the 12 stories are going to match exactly? Impossible. They don't. There's going to be something different. Well, that car was a little driving a little faster. No, it was driving a little slower. Well, no, that car started to go to the left. No, I think it went to the right. Because we see things differently, it doesn't mean it's not true. You see them differently. Now, Mark 16.1 says that there was Mary Magdalene, Mary, not our Mary, but the Mary of James and Joseph, and the mother of James and John called Salome. So two Marys and a Salome. So you have Mary Magdalene, some other Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, not our Mary, and then a lady named Salome, who was the mother of James and John, the apostles. Those three came to the tomb. 
That's what Mark tells us. Now it's fitting that Mary Magdalene and these should be the first to get the good news as a reward. They were at the cross. They're the same ladies that were at the cross. They didn't run away. They were there when he was laid in the tomb. You don't think Jesus is not going to reward these people? That's why I think the Polish and the Filipino people are being rewarded now with being spreaders of divine mercy because they remained faithful through World War II tragedy and, and, and such attacks, and yet they remained Catholic, 95%. God bless them. So now... They were the first to proclaim, go tell. This is a commandment for those to come to know Christ. Go tell the world about Christ. This is what they were doing. And then he says, go tell my brothers. This is the first time that Jesus calls them my brothers. Why? Why now? They just ran away. It shows he forgave them. Jesus forgave them. And it shows that the past is forgiven. As an ancient church, the ancient Catholic church put it, she's the apostle to the apostles. Did you know that? Mary Magdalene is the apostle to the apostles. And so notably, Jesus received worship from these ladies. You know, if Jesus wasn't God, there's no way he would have accepted worship. All right, we're almost done with Mary Magdalene. We want to get under the Da Vinci Code. Now, John mentions Mary Magdalene without any mention of these other women. Does <clears throat> that mean it's incomplete? Maybe. Does it mean it's incorrect? No, not necessarily. Let's look at our next slide. Slide number nine. Here is two women looking into the tomb and you see an angel or do you see a man? Gee, it looks like a man, but he's got wings like an angel. <laughs> All right. So who is in the tomb? Angels or men? How many? Now, here's what's interesting. Mark and Luke tell us there were two men sitting in the tomb. Interesting. Matthew says an angel was sitting in the tomb. And John says there were two angels. So Matthew and, or excuse me, Mark and Luke say it was two men. Matthew says it was an angel. And John says it was two angels. Can't these guys get it right? Again, it's the perspective. It's not necessarily contradictory. Mark and Luke describe what the woman saw. They saw men. Whereas Matthew and John give an interpretation of what the women saw. Angels. Well, Father, is it a man or an angel? Aha! Remember, Genesis 18 and Hebrews 13 tell us angels often appear as men. That's your answer. Angels often appear as men. So in one of the gospel passages, they see men, the other angels. Doesn't mean it's a lie. Well, I dismiss the Bible. That right there shows it's contradictory. It's one big lie. No, it's not how we read the Bible. This is maybe why Mary, this is, this is interesting because this is with regard to how, okay, I also mentioned not just that they're men or angels, but how many angels? Okay, John says there were two angels. Matthew says it was one angel. How many? All right. With regard to how many? Matthew only mentions the one that spoke. If five of you came to talk to me at the end of mass, and I only talked to one of you named Hildy, and I don't talk to the other four of you, and I go later, and Father Kaz says, what happened after mass? Oh, I spoke to Hildy. Well, that doesn't mean I'm lying that, 
Samantha wasn't there and Pamela wasn't there and Amanda wasn't there. It doesn't mean that. I just spoke to Hildy. So when I mentioned that, I just mentioned Hildy. It doesn't mean I'm lying that the others weren't there. This is how we read the Bible. All right, now, here's a great question. Did Jesus appear to his mother before Mary Magdalene after the resurrection? There's no mention of Mary the mother here. Non-Catholics will constantly point that out. That's the uselessness of Mary. Can't believe it. The mother of God, and we're told that she's the whore of Babylon. I, I just, I'm baffled by that. If you want to know what I'm talking about, just read the comments on the Islam talk that I said that Mary would be the one to bring Muslims back. Those comments are shocking, but pray for the people. God bless them. This is why we're doing this. This is why we have you here with us. And so Jesus appeared to his mother, Mary, true or false? All right, let's look at our next slide. Here's a picture of a painting of Jesus appearing to Mary. Pious belief says, yes, Jesus must to have appeared to his mother before anybody else. But as our non-Catholic brethren will say, show me that in the Bible. So remember, not everything that ever occurred is in scripture. How do we know that? First John, or excuse me, John 21, verse 25. Not everything is in the Bible. The Bible tells you not everything is in the Bible. Now, one of the big reasons, popular belief, is that when what's written about Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene and the other women and the apostles was proof that Christ has risen. But Jesus appearing to his mother is just about love. It's just a love story. It was personal. It didn't need to be documented as proof of his resurrection. It was just about love between a mother and a son. That's why maybe Mary didn't go to the tomb. Mary now the mother of Jesus. Pope John Paul said in his general audience in 1997 that he believes that's why Mary didn't go to the tomb. I think that's interesting. And I want to finish now with Mary Magdalene. So we're done with Mary Magdalene. I want to finish though. I was talking with one of our theologians, Chris Sparks, and he had a really good insight when I talked to him about, was Mary a prostitute? Mary Magdalene now. <laughs> oh, please. Mary Magdalene, not our mother Mary. Mary Magdalene, was she a prostitute? All right. Actually, church tradition says yes. Now, does this mean it's a bad thing? Does this mean that we should scrub everything about the Catholic Church because they're degrading women and they don't want a woman to have any power in the church, so they made her a prostitute. All right, let's look at this. People today insist that if we say Mary Magdalene was a reformed prostitute, we're marginalizing her. We're, we're degrading her. Interesting. Now, here's what Chris Sparks shared with me, and I, 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 I'm, I'm going to probably put it in his words because I think it's fascinating. The claim, basically, of a prostitute, to claim her as a woman caught in adultery, which was John chapter 8, verse 1 through 11, by saying that was Mary Magdalene, because remember the woman, they drug her in before Jesus and said this woman was caught in adultery. Does it give her name in the gospel? No. But to claim that that was Mary Magdalene, many say, oppresses women. The church's position as a repentant sinner who anointed Christ's feet with costly ointment in Luke 7, what I already explained to you, 
must be seen as an attempt to downplay her role as a leader in the church. We want to discredit her. We want to knock her down. This woman has, Jesus gave a lot of authority to and a lot of power to and a lot of grace, but it's a woman. We can't have that. We got to knock her down. This is what the criticisms of the Catholic Church are. Now, some books try to rehabilitate her by trying to make out that she was an ordinary wealthy woman. She was not a prostitute. Although she says in scripture she was liberated from seven demons, seven demons. Now, they try to say that she was always respectable. She was not lifted out of a life of prostitution. That was all made up by the church. And this is what was all made up to keep a good woman down. But remember, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. So Mary Magdalene, as she's been traditionally remembered, is probably the greatest example of God's mercy. If she truly was a prostitute and then was elevated to be the first person to see the resurrection, can you even imagine? Are you serious? If she was from prostitute to the first witness of the resurrection, oh my gosh, that's even greater glory to God than if she was this perfect pious woman to begin with. So don't dismiss this thinking the church is doing something wrong here. Now, Chris said, we need Mary Magdalene, the sinner made saint, just as much as we need Our Lady. I was shocked. I was shocked. And he goes, let me explain. I'm talking by example here. Now, he made a great point. He said, Our Lady has always been perfect. So how does a sinner caught in sexual sin, especially, or any addiction supposed to look at Mary and say, you know what? I can never be perfect. I give up. I'm not going to resist this temptation. I can't make it. I'm giving up. That's where Mary Magdalene comes in. If you've been beaten down, heard yourself confessing the same sins over and over, like a broken record, Mary Magdalene is a great example. What do I mean by this? We need to model... Chris said, of a prostitute turned penitent, of the woman who had been sinful and exploited and then finds Jesus, a man who would not abuse her, the God who would not condemn her, but would rather raise her up to everlasting life. This gives hope to the rest of us. If a prostitute can become a saint, and we already know Mary's perfect, Mary, the mother of Jesus. But for a saint, or excuse me, for a prostitute to become a saint, this is an incredible story. This is an oppression. This is a beautiful story. And so when we don't understand that, we need an icon of hope, he said, for the trapped, the trafficked, the sinful, and the sorrowful of the world. He said, in an, and I'm quoting him now, in an age of objectification, online pornography, when people are reduced to objects of lust, this is why, please, if you're, if you're caught on pornography, please, it's a hard habit to break. But the demons will attach themselves to that image that you're viewing. 
The eyes are the windows to the soul. You open your eye to those images, demons attach themselves and they'll come right in. This is why Mary Magdalene, or in the physical act of doing it, this is why Mary Magdalene had seven demons. If you are struggling with things like impatience, anger, unforgiveness, greed, lust, envy, jealousy, you have to look at what portals maybe the demons are getting in. One of the biggest portals is your eyes. And so if this situation, we need an icon for hope. If we're trapped in this, the powerless who are bought and sold for the gratification and greed of others, this gives them hope. It gives us hope. What does it say to prostitutes who can't get out if we dare say Mary Magdalene was way too good to have ever been a prostitute? What does that tell prostitutes? You're not worthy of mercy. If we're determined and convinced to say Mary was not that, Mary Magdalene was not that bad of a person, what are we telling the poor ladies today that are caught in this way of life trying to get out and can't? You're not worthy of God's mercy. They basically give up. Mary Magdalene is hope. This is such an important thing today. What does it say to those coming out of lives of exploitation and abuse that the saint who once would have been their model and guide now cannot have a past like theirs because we don't like it. It degrades women. No. It shows that any sinner can have a, become a saint. This is what the message is. What could be more empowering to women? Not just women, men. St. Augustine for us. St. Augustine said, Lord, make me chaste, just not yet. <laughs> and so any man who's struggling with this, not just a woman. Now, no matter what you've done, it's almost like Mary Magdalene tells you this. You know what? If Mary Magdalene could come here right now, if Mary Magdalene could stand right next to me and I step aside in complete awe and say, Mary Magdalene, St. Mary Magdalene, what do you have to say to the people? She would probably say, no matter what you've done, come to Jesus as I did. No matter what you've done, come to Jesus as I did. Faustina, Paragraph in her diary, 723, the greater the sinner, the greater the right he has to my mercy. So let's pray in reparation for our sins of the flesh and the sins of others caught in this kind of life. Either the perpetrators or the victims, human trafficking. Let us intercede for those a slave to addictions and forced to sell themselves to satisfy the lust of others. Human trafficking is a horrible reality. She's the saint. And you know what? I want to finish. I keep saying I want to finish with Mary Magdalene. We are done. But I want to tell you one quick story about the Easter egg. Let's take a look at our next slide. There's an Easter egg. He is risen. Now, Easter eggs, why did, why did Easter eggs come about? An Easter egg symbolizes Easter because what happens? The eggshell, like a tomb, cracks open and new life springs forth from it. 
So you got this little chicky caught in a, like a tomb. The tomb cracks, breaks open, and out comes the chicken. A new life. That's the symbol of the Easter egg. Easter is not about the Easter bunny. But that's what symbol came from it as the Easter egg. Now, it represents new life like Mary Magdalene. Like Jesus in the tomb. Mary Magdalene was dead. She came to life. Now, this comes and important because tradition says Mary Magdalene once got an invitation to a banquet at the Roman emperor's house, Tiberius. This is tradition. When she met him, she had a plain egg in her hand. She wanted to teach and explain Christ is risen. This is the tradition of the Easter egg. So she held the egg in her hand and said, the chick will come from this egg, bust through life, just like Jesus out of the tomb, or her in a way, from her old life. She announced Christ is risen. He laughed at her, the emperor Tiberius, and said, Christ rising from the dead was as likely as that egg in your hand turning red. And that egg turned a bright red in the middle of her hand. And that became the tradition of the colored Easter egg in our tradition. She proclaimed the gospel to the entire imperial house. Interesting, huh? All right, I spent a little too much time on Mary Magdalene, but there could never be too much time on Mary Magdalene. Let's finish with the Da Vinci Code. Why do I bring this? Because it's about Mary Magdalene. It's a fictional story. Back in 2006, it swept the, not just the country, it swept the world. Let's go to our next slide. This is the Da Vinci Code. Now, it's by Dan Brown. And let's do a little bit of a review here on what this is about. All right, I'm going to give you just one paragraph summary. In the Louvre in Paris, the art museum, there was a monk from Opus Dei. What is that? That's like a religious uh, fraternal um, association, uh, like we as a religious community. His name was Silas. Now, again, this is a fictional novel. And he apprehended this Jacques Saunier, the museum's curator, and he demanded to know where the Holy Grail was. What's the Holy Grail? The chalice Jesus used, like we do in the Mass, he used at the Last Supper. Now, after Sunier told him, Silas the monk shot him and leaves him for dead. However, Saunier had lied to Silas about the Grail and its real location. Now, realizing only had a few moments to live and that he must pass on an important secret, this Saunier paints a pentacle on his stomach with his own blood and then draws a circle with his blood and drags himself into the center of the circle, recreating the position of da Vinci's Vitruvian man who also left a code. Excuse me, this guy, I'm sorry, he left a code. He also left a code and a line of numbers and two lines of text on the ground in invisible ink. So all of this is going on. Now let's look at our next slide. There you see the Mona Lisa, the Da Vinci Code all together. The message was decoded and it was 
said, it said, Leonardo da Vinci, the Mona Lisa. So they're like, okay, what's the connection with the Holy Grail, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Mona Lisa? What is all this? Now, keeping in mind, this is all fiction. But sadly, many of you believed it. I want to correct this. The main actors learned, this is the one played by Tom Hanks. And it was right after he did Forrest Gump. I love Forrest Gump. So I went from my favorite movie of all time to the worst movie of all time. So the main actors learned a false legend of the Holy Grail starting with historical evidence that the Bible didn't come from God, but was compiled by Constantine. <sighs> All right. If I had a dollar for every time I was told that Constantine started the Catholic Church, I would be like, uh, I'd be rich, even though I don't have any money. And that's good. Constantine did not start the Catholic Church. Constantine legalized it. It's the same thing as something that existed and then he legalized it. Doesn't mean he started it. He legalized it in Rome. The movie makes this false claim that Jesus's divinity was not true. He was not God, but it was decided by a vote at the Council of Nicaea. This is what they say, and everybody believes it. And that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, who was of royal blood, and Jesus had children with her. Now, that's why they call the Holy Grail, not the chalice that Jesus drank from, of the precious blood. They call the Holy Grail Mary Magdalene, because she had the blood of Jesus in her with a baby. This is preposterous. It's, it's beyond, I mean, 50, even, I mean, maybe not 50 years ago, but 200 years ago, if you would have written something like this, it, it was insane. So the Holy Grail is not the chalice that held the precious blood. The Holy Grail was the body of Mary Magdalene because she held the real blood of Jesus, the baby. Now, it shows in this book these hidden symbols in the Last Supper and in hidden symbols in the paintings of Mary Magdalene. Let's look at our next slide. That's the Holy Grail. Well, at least in, um, what we think the Holy Grail would look like. That's what the cup would have looked like that Jesus drank from in first century Jews. But this book claims the Holy Grail, as I said, is Mary Magdalene. It claims that there are documents to prove Mary's bloodline is related to Jesus. Those documents are Gnostic, the most heretical documents ever written. Finally, it shows the murders that happened. Now, these are not true. Opus Dei was very upset because everybody thought the Opus Dei murdered somebody. My goodness. It shows the murders that happened, happened because the church feared that the real secret was about to be revealed to the world. Jesus isn't God. He ran off with Mary Magdalene and had a baby. And, and that bloodline has continued to today. And he wasn't God. 
His only mission to come to earth was to get power, to become the new King David. Had nothing to do with the Jesus of Christianity. All right, so finally, somebody stepped up named Carl E. Olson. He's the author of The Da Vinci Hoax. And he pointed out in an interview <clears throat> that all fiction, even good fiction like Hamlet or bad fiction like The Da Vinci Code, influence how we think. And boy, did this one. He said, Dan Brown is quite open about his goal. His goal was to expose Christianity and the Catholic Church as false and to push a certain ideology of radical feminism. This guy had an agenda. He's not writing fact or history or truth. He's writing an agenda. He claims that the novel is well-researched and historically accurate. Really? The novel's full of errors. So it's amazing to think that it was accepted by anyone. It's a sad commentary on our society today. Now, I am not going to tell or defame any character here. I'm going to give you the facts. I'm not going to say Dan Brown is a bad man. I'm not going to say that he is his intentions. What I just said about his desire to expose the church was his own words. I'm not formulating my conclusion saying, well, by reading the book, I think Dan Brown is trying to do something bad. I'm not saying that. I am giving you none of my opinion here. I am giving you none of speculation here. The words I just read that he said were from himself. I'm giving you facts. The novel is factually incorrect. The Da Vinci Code, for instance, when you look at things Let's look at the reaction. He was asked, this author of The Da Vinci Hoax, Carl Olson, was asked about the reaction of The Da Vinci Code versus Mel Gibson in The Passion of the Christ. This is fascinating. Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ was condemned by many critics as being historically inaccurate and anti-Semitic. In the case of The Da Vinci Code, it was almost given universal praise. There was almost no dissent other than the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church was very vocal about condemning this book. So I'm just giving you what the church said about it. And yet the novel is filled with so many errors and very biased against the Catholic Church, but yet it was praised. Mel Gibson was interviewed by Diane Sawyer, I think of ABC News, about the passion. And Carl Olson stated he was raked over the coals. Now, I didn't see this interview, so I'm just giving you what Carl Olson said. Carl Olson said he was raked over the coals regarding his beliefs about the Holocaust and the Jews. But when Dave Brown was interviewed on the Today Show, CNN, and the ABC special, quote, Jesus, Mary, and Da Vinci, he was never asked about his dislike of the Catholic Church. So wait a minute. Carl Olson points out Mel Gibson was raked over the coals, his words, about not liking Jewish and being anti-Semitic, but yet Dan Brown was never asked on CNN, 
the Today Show or ABC, Jesus, Mary, and Da Vinci about his dislike towards the Catholic Church, even though he had stated it. He was never asked. On the contrary, he was treated as a great scholar and historian. Again, the words of Carl Olson. On that ABC special, Jesus, Mary, and Da Vinci, there was only one Catholic. And it was a Catholic priest. I won't mention his name. I have it here, but I won't mention it. That is notorious for not following church teaching. Why would you interview a Catholic priest that is notorious for not following church teaching? Now, if you want to know who that is, you can look it up. But they had several feminists and radical Christians. One TV station had a panel discussing the novel. And the participants came from Judaism, Islam, and the Protestant faith, but not one Catholic. <laughs> the book's about the Catholic Church. And you don't have one Catholic. Now, the co-author of this book, Sandra Meisel, the co-author of The Da Vinci Hoax, she said, and I'm quoting her, please, if you're a fan, I'm, I'm just giving you the quotes of the people. In the end, Dan Brown has penned a poorly written, atrociously researched mess. His book is more than just a story of a quest for the grail. He wholly reinterprets falsely the grail. Instead of being Jesus' chalice, Brown claims the Holy Grail was Mary Magdalene. She was the vessel that held the blood of Jesus in her womb by bearing his children. Over the centuries, the grail keepers have been guarding the true and continuing bloodline of Christ and the relics of Mary Magdalene not a material vessel. This is what he's claiming. That's false. Brown claims that the quest for the Holy Grail is the quest to kneel before the bones of Mary Magdalene. That's false. The bones of Mary Magdalene have never, ever, ever been taught by the church to be the Holy Grail. This is a hoax. This would surely have surprised even Sir Galahad and the other grail knights who were looking for Jesus' chalice. So we're going to finish there. The mad albino of Opus Dei, Silas the monk, would stop at nothing to reveal the secret, or would stop the re or do not or everything to stop the revealing of the secret of the Holy Grail, according to the story. So there's a barrage of codes, puzzles, mysteries, conspiracies. Quote, Dan Brown, everyone loves a conspiracy. Those are his own words. Everyone loves a conspiracy. He said, every faith in the world is based on fabrication. Sorry, Mr. Brown, you're wrong. The Catholic faith is based 100% on the truth of the one and living God. God, three persons in one who came to earth, the second person of the Trinity in the incarnation to spring the message of us of salvation, to redeem broken humanity, to give us everlasting life. He actually cites the principal sources within his text, but listen to these sources. 
The sources have been not found in any historical fact. The Amerovingians didn't found Paris, which he claims. The Pope at the time he was writing about did not live in Rome. The Pope lived in Avignon. He stated all this as fact and said the church burned five million women as witches. This is listed as fact. What is the real fact? The real fact that during the European witch craze, there wasn't five million deaths. There was 30,000, some say as high as 50,000, way less than five million. And they were not all done by the church. Actually, most of them were done by the king. Not all were women and not all were burned. Still, this is what was said. So these, ad, these errors are a multitude. Now, Brown treats, let's take our next slide. Here's a picture of a beautiful Gothic Catholic church. The author treats Gothic architecture. Look at how beautiful that church is. Why are churches beautiful? Because God deserves the best in beauty. He claimed that Gothic architecture is full of goddess-worshiping symbols and coded messages. He says the church were built around the female anatomy. <laughs> Where do you come up with this stuff? He said the churches were built by the Knights Templar. Sorry, Mr. Brown. The Knights Templar had nothing to do with the cathedrals of the time. They were commissioned by the bishops. That's when the churches were built. The Knights Templar were an uneducated man with no knowledge of sacred geometry and how to build the pyramids. This is all a fantasy. The round churches were not an example of a female anatomy. They were an example and built in honor of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the tomb of Christ. Come on. Romanesque churches, which I think are the most pretty, they even predate the founding of the Templars. So how in the world could the Templars have built them when the Romanesque churches predate the founding of the Templars? So neither Brown nor his sources consider the symbolism of what was went into the churches when they were built. They were stated, they were very clear in the intention of the churches. It wasn't goddess worship, but that's what we're told. All right, the holy blood, according to him, descended from Jesus and his wife, Mary Magdalene, to the Merovingian dynasty in the Dark Ages in France, surviving to this day in certain French families. Now, where does he get all this? Let's look at our next slide. He uses the book, The Templar Revelation, which was a book on your screen, and it views an organization, this Knights Templar, as a cult of secret goddess worshipers who preserve the ancient Gnostic wisdom and records of Christ, saying he wasn't God and his only mission was power. This is not what the Knights Templar were about. They didn't give their life for that. They gave their life for the truth. He makes Christ and Mary Magdalene sex partners. Why aren't the Catholics if we even draw a picture of a certain prophet in other faiths, you better worry about your life. That's crazy too. 
But where were the Catholics standing up and saying, this is deplorable. Calling our God, Jesus Christ, a sex partner of Mary Magdalene? Where was the outcry? I mean, as a priest, I'm sitting back here saying, why didn't I say something back then? I am now. He said that Mary Magdalene and Jesus were sex partners performing the erotic mysteries of Isis. No, not the radical Islamic group, the goddess. From these books, he used the Holy Blood, the Holy Grail, and the Templar Revelation. He discredits the whole Bible. He says, Jesus is neither the Messiah nor a humble carpenter, but a wealthy religious teacher bent on power. His goal was to use the rich Mary Magdalene to reassume the throne of David. This is insanity. Brown claims that Christ wasn't even considered divine until the Council of Nicaea in 325. As I said before, that's ridiculous. He talks about Constantine, that he was a lifelong sun worshiper, ordered all other scriptures destroyed. That's why we have no complete gospel uh, copies before the fourth century. The point is, we have copies of the copies. Yes, they don't know what happened to the originals, but they're verbatim of the originals. It says it. Now, history loses a lot of things, but God preserved it through the monks. Remember, primitive church documents and the testimony of even those who didn't like the Nicene fathers confirm that Christians have always believed Jesus is God. Always. And he is our Savior. So much so they were willing to die for it. He keeps referring to the church as the Vatican, even at times when the popes weren't even there. They were in Avignon. Then St. Catherine brought him back to Rome. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. Brown's treatment, and again, I'm using the words here of the Da Vinci hoax. Brown's treatment of Mary Magdalene is sheer delusion. He claims she's no penitent prostitute, but Christ's royal helper, and who was really, he wanted to be the head of the church. But because the church hated women, they made Peter the head. Well, didn't Jesus say, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church? I don't think he said, upon Mary Magdalene. But it doesn't mean she doesn't have a role. What it does mean is the church is following the words of Christ. She fled, the book says, with her offspring to France, where the medieval Cathars kept the real teachings of Jesus alive. What are these real teachings of Jesus? Brown says, and he gets his information from two Gnostic documents, the Gospel of Philip and the Gospel of Mary. Now, let me clarify something here. The heretical gospel of Philip does not mean it was written by Philip. The heretical gospel of Mary does not mean it was written by Mary. There are people who use the name. He used them to prove that Mary Magdalene was Christ's companion and sexual partner. And the apostles were jealous because Jesus used to kiss her on the mouth 
and favored her over them. Have you ever heard such garbage? I'm not making this up. I'm just telling you what is in there. And millions and millions and millions of people believed it. That's leading souls away from Jesus Christ. Our job is to bring souls to Jesus Christ. And one of the ways is by telling the truth. All right. So then let's go to our next slide. What about the Knights Templar? Where did they come from? Well, he defamed a lot of the Catholic Church. They are the oldest military religious order founded in 1118 to protect pilgrims going to the Holy Land. If you didn't see my talk a couple weeks ago, I did one on the Crusades. And they were disbanded after the Crusades when needs changed. It's kind of like after the World War II ended, the, the plants in Detroit, like Willow Run that was building bombers, they used to build automobiles. And I worked in the Detroit auto plants as an industrial engineering manager. And in World War II, they switched all those plants over to building bombers. Then after World War II ended, they no longer built bombers. There was no need for bombers. They went back to building cars. Needs changed. So after the Crusades, needs changed and the Knights Templar was disbanded. They no longer needed to rescue people from the Holy Land that were being beheaded. Now, Brown wrongfully ascribes the suspension of these Templars to the Pope. He says Pope Clement V did it because they were blackmailing with the, about the Grail's secret. And so he had them arrested, charged them falsely, had them tortured and killed. But you know what the reality is? The initiative for crushing the Templars came from King Philip the Fair of France. Look up real history. Want to know real history? Read somebody like Warren Carroll, the founder of Christendom College. That's where I get a lot of my training and, and knowledge of history from seminary. You have to read the true objective sources. Yes, it's true. About 120 Templars were burned by local, not the church, local courts in France because they wouldn't confess. Clement, Pope Clement V, he was this weak, sickly Frenchman that was manipulated by the king. He didn't burn anybody in Rome, as Dan Brown claims, because he lived in Avignon. How could he personally have burned Knights Templar in Rome when he wasn't even in Rome? Last page. <laughs> You're all like, yay. He even twisted da Vinci himself. Let's go to our next slide. There is a picture of the Last Supper and Leonardo da Vinci. He claims to have first run across his views about da Vinci when he was, quote, studying art history in Seville. But what's interesting is they correspond point by point from the book, The Templar Revelation. Hmm. Interesting. He claims that da Vinci received hundreds of lucrative Vatican commissions. Actually, you know what the truth is? Because Carl Olson looked it up in the da Vinci hoax. It was one. 
And that one was never executed, was never um, carried out. Next slide, the Mona Lisa. All of you have seen the Mona Lisa. Now he presents the Mona Lisa as an androgynous self-portrait of da Vinci. It is pretty much completely accepted that she was a real woman. Madonna Lisa, the wife of Francesco di Bartolomeo del Giocondo. Can look that up. So wrapping up here, much of Brown's argument centers around da Vinci's Last Supper. You've seen the Last Supper, it's a painting. He considers it full of coded messages that reveal the truth about Jesus and the Holy Grail. Why? Brown points out that there's no chalice on the table. And he says, there you go. The chalice is not a cup. It's Mary Magdalene. Look on the table. There's no chalice. And millions of Catholics fell for this. Wow, you got to know our faith. You know why? Let's look at our next slide. Here's a picture of it. Here's a picture of da Vinci's painting that dramatizes the Last Supper. But guess what it was referring to? The moment when Jesus warned, quote, one of you will betray me. John 13, 21. Da Vinci is painting the Last Supper based on the Gospel of John. There is no institution narrative of the Eucharist in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, Jesus does not lift the bread and say the prayer or lift the wine and say the prayer. Those are in the other synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's no institution narrative in the Gospel of John. So da Vinci didn't put the Eucharist or the chalice on the table. He was following the Gospel of John. Again, because John didn't have it, does it mean it didn't happen? No. And the person sitting next to Jesus, look at the circle if Brother Mark can put it back on the screen. See where the circle is? That is not Mary Magdalene. Non-Catholics, I remember. I remember before I even came to the Marians. I know it was right about the time I came to the Marians, 2006. Everybody's saying, did you see that? Look at the Da Vinci Code proves. Look at that painting. It's a feminine. That can't be a man. That looks like a woman. Well, they had long hair back then. But it is John portrayed as an effeminate Da Vinci himself in his youth. Da Vinci would do that. It was like... Uh, who is the guy, Alfred Hitchcock, that used to insert himself in his own movies? Da Vinci would sometimes insert himself. Da Vinci was an effeminate youth, similar to how he portrayed himself in John the Baptist. Now, although Da Vinci was, yes, a troubled homosexual, this is true, Brown's contention that he coded his paintings with these anti-Christian messages is absolutely unprovable. And I want to finish with the famous of all questions. And I want to address it for Mark Brumley. He's a, a good guy, part of Augustine Institute. Was Jesus married? Because all along here, you've been hearing me say that he claims Jesus married. Some of you might be thinking, well, was he? And doing my research for this talk, I was watching a video online with who I used to really like, Ron Howard, um, a Tom Hanks and one of the producers from this movie. 
And they asked him about Jesus being married. And he said, I would be thrilled if Jesus was married because the Catholic church hates gay people. And if Jesus was married, we'd show he wasn't gay. And everybody laughed. We just sit by and watch the sacredness of our faith be mocked. And that's what happened. Let's talk about this. Let's finish with this. The New Testament doesn't say that Jesus had a wife. There's no hint of it. But again, that doesn't mean it didn't happen, right? Well, let's look deeper then. Christianity holds that Jesus gave himself wholly to the mission of the will of the Father, spreading the word of the Father, the kingdom of God. If Jesus was married, it's why we priests don't marry. Why do we priests not marry? Because we are wholly dedicated to the mission of Christ. This mission is not eight to five. A good father's job should be eight to five because before and after that, it's his family. A good father will come home and then turn into dad, husband. The gospels tell us that the unmarried man, unmarried woman can focus fully on God, but the married woman has all the essences of family and husband and children. But the unmarried woman can focus fully on God. That doesn't mean being married is inferior. It just means, well, I mean, being called to the religious life is a higher calling, but that doesn't mean for you. Maybe God called you to the religious life. Maybe he called you to marriage. But the point is, one of the reasons I delayed my vocation to the priesthood was I wanted to marry Gina. I, we talked about it. I, I, I was like, Lord, I was praying that the church would change their rule so that I could quit, get married, and then become a priest. And then I realized, can't do that. <laughs> but now... I look back, there is no way I could be married. First of all, no girl could handle me. But secondly, because there's no way then that I could give God my full attention. Half your time has to be with your family. Half my time would be with God. That would mean both of them suffer half the time. And that would mean half the time my family suffers, I'm not with them. And half the time, God, I'm not doing his work. Being a priest is not eight to five. Every day starts at 6 a.m., goes to midnight, seven days a week. Yeah, and the night times I throw in a pair of sweats and might turn on the game, but I'm sitting there working on my emails to you or typing up my next talk. It's always focused on doing God's work. There's no way I could be married, even though I would love it. I never thought I could go to bed every night alone the rest of my life. That's what delayed my vocation. Lord, there's no way I can crawl into an empty bed every day the rest of my life. Now, I can't imagine not being a priest. Can't imagine it. I would love, yeah, I would love to be married, but there's no desire anymore. The desire is to be married to the church. The desire is to be serving the will of God. And that's what Jesus did. So it makes sense 
Now, why do I say all that? All right. If Jesus was married, at some point, either his marriage would have been compromised or his mission from the Father would have been compromised. Neither scenario fits the Christian view of Jesus. He was dedicated fully to doing the will of the Father, but he also was a spouse. Well, wait a minute, Father. Why wouldn't Jesus be good enough to be a spouse? He was. Who was his bride? The church. The church. Paul discusses this relationship between husband and wives in 1 Corinthians 7. If Jesus was married, don't you think he would have mentioned Jesus as the perfect example? If Jesus had a female human wife and Paul is writing about marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, it is absolutely guaranteed that he would have pointed to Jesus and said, you want a father's husband? You want to see a good example? Jesus and his wife, Mary Magdalene. No way. In Ephesians 5, it's about the relationship between Jesus and his bride, not a woman, the church. Some apostles, were they married? Yes. Some took their wives along to assist them. This was 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5. And there were other times where they left them behind. Now, we have no similar mentions of Jesus ever bringing a wife or leaving a wife behind, as the apostles did. Nothing about a wife continued Jesus' ministry after he died like the apostles. Did you know that after the apostles lived who continued their ministry? Their wives. But as the dedication and went on, because remember, these guys were married before Jesus called them. Well, Father, if the apostles could marry, why aren't priests marrying now? You just told me you can't do it. The apostles did it. They were married first. <clears throat> That's why the church does allow some men who are married first to become priests. Church is not against that. There are some men that come over from the Anglican faith that are already married. They become priests. I know married priests. But you don't become married or you don't get married after having already been a priest. If you are married before, there are ways you can become a priest. If you are a priest first, you don't get married after. That's matching scripture. All right, so let's finish. <clears throat> Some will say that most Jewish men of Jesus' time and age were expected to marry and have wives. This is important. No, some of the Essenes at Qumran, who are they? The Dead Sea Scroll people. They practice celibacy. Do you know the Old Testament? Jeremiah was celibate. John the Baptist appears to have been celibate. No wife. Jesus talks about those who are eunuchs for the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean literally be castrated. But it means you're not using that part of God's gift in your humanity for raising children because you're dedicated to your spouse, the church. I told the story before that when I was really struggling coming to the church, I had a Bible on the table and I was struggling with answering the call of the priesthood because man, again, did I want to marry Jean and have children. But the Bible was on the table one day and I'm cleaning up my stuff and Rocky's there begging me for dinner. And I remember I'm shuffling things around and I turned around and I had the Bible open and I knocked the Bible by accident and it literally flipped 180 degrees and landed on the floor. 
And I pulled open the Bible, uh, just like Augustine. I always remember the story where Augustine looked at a specific passage. And I looked at it, and sure enough, it was Matthew 19, 12. If any of you are given that gift, you should accept it. What gift? Being a eunuch for the church. Not physically castrated, but spiritually for the church. And I'm not castrated, I can promise you, physically or spiritually. Because the priest gives, gives life. Now, instead of having three or four or five or eight or ten children, we've got millions. Most of you now on the live stream. <laughs> All right, so to finish, I gotta keep saying that. No document within 150 years of Jesus' death depicts or even implies that he had such a relationship. Some might argue that Mary Magdalene was Jesus' lover rather than his wife. Okay, Father, he wasn't married, but he was his lover, or she was his lover. No, accusations against Jesus are all in the Bible. Everything he was accused of is in the Bible. So Mary Magdalene was never mentioned as an accusation. If she was accused or he was accused of having her as a lover, it would appear in the Bible and refuted. That didn't happen. It was such a claim in the early, if such a claim was in the early church, there would have been evidence in the Bible against it. If it were true, why would the Bible writers put it in the Bible to risk it? Mary, I mean, not, not the scandal, but just Mary at all. If Jesus was, if Mary Magdalene was a skeleton in Jesus's closet, why would the gospel writers mention her more than anybody else? More than any other woman. All right. Was it possible for Jesus to been attracted to her? Oh, this is a good question. Father, is it possible that Jesus had a physical attraction to a female? He was a man. So in a way, in a way, yes, but I didn't say disordered. Jesus was human in his nature. He had human emotions like anger. This is all in the Gospels. Anger, love, grief, joy. And he had human desires, hunger, thirst, rest, but Jesus has no sin, so he has no concupiscence, which would make any attraction to a female anything but pure and holy. It would not have been distorted. So it would not have been impure. So to finish on our last slide, Jesus, his bride, let's take a look there. That's our last slide. The bride is the church. So there is no apparent purpose for him to have needed romantic attraction. He had his bride the church. Scriptures do not mention that he was ever attracted. He didn't need to be. And if he was, it wasn't disordered in the least because he didn't have concupiscence because he didn't have sin. He was focused on his mission of saving us. Jesus points us, Jesus points to celibacy as a spiritual ideal in Matthew 19. So if he's saying that this gift is special, why would he himself not have it? You can't give what you don't have. So if Jesus is saying it's the highest gift, oh, but I'm not going to be that myself, wouldn't be valid. It would be strange for him to propose that this spiritual ideal is the best, but him himself not have it. If he was married, understanding the church as his mystical bride would have never been developed. The gospel writers never would have developed the theory that the bride of Christ is the church if Christ had a real female human bride, period.
So I want to finish with a less than two minute video on your screen. I want to show you the church's reaction to the Da Vinci Code when it came out in 2006. It's only two minutes long. Take a look because it'll show you what the church uh, actually said about the Da Vinci Code. In just two weeks, the Da Vinci Code movie will hit cinemas all over the world. In the Eternal City, the media blitz has already begun. The film is based on Dan Brown's bestseller, which the Vatican has harshly criticized. It's certainly disturbing that no respect is being shown for the hundreds of millions of people who believe in Christ, the Church and the Gospels, but it's the result of ignorance and arrogance. According to the author, Christ is not divine. He's a regular person. The plot has ruffled many feathers and not just Catholic ones. It attacks the first millennium, which is common in common and where we have exactly our the same responsibility, if there is a responsibility to take, as the Roman Catholic Church. The Church has also criticized the way the novel presents Catholics. It presents uh, some elements of the Catholic Church as criminals, uh, but also as stupid criminals. The, the killer and uh, the superior who runs around with a suitcase full of notes which are clearly identifiable, it is a farce. But what worries the Vatican most is the author's claim that the book is based on historical fact. Certainly, revisionist history should be condemned and courageously rejected because the Church is only interested in history and the truth. Leading people to believe that a novel is a history book is unacceptable. Catholics have been quick to react, with some encouraging the public to go to another movie, Over the Hedge, the weekend it comes out. And others, like the group Opus Dei, asking producer Sony Films to insert a disclaimer. We are asking Sony, the company that is producing the movie on the best-selling book by Dan Brown, to include a disclaimer saying that it's pure fiction and that any reference to real persons or things is just a coincidence. American bishops are using the Internet as a tool to educate the public. The U.S. Bishops' Conference, through the Catholic Communications Campaign, has launched a website, Jesus uh, Decoded, and with the idea that at least the book has stirred up interest in Jesus, let's give people some accurate information. Analysts say Sony needs to urgently decide how serious it is about not offending one of the world's leading religions. Well, thank you everybody for watching. And you know, please to summarize here, my intent isn't to say somebody has bad intent. My intent is to give the facts and that you know and understand your Catholic faith and that you can learn more about it so you can love it even more. And we do invite you to be part of our Marian family. Uh, if Mark can show the MIC prayer slide, join us, be part of it. There's no cost, there's no obligation. It takes 10 seconds. Go to visit micprayers.org, be part of our Marian family, and you too can share in all the graces of our masses, prayers, penances, and that is what being part of our faith is all about. So until next week, may Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Why be a Marian helper? because we, Marian Fathers, celebrate a Mass for you and all our members each and every day. You can share in all the prayers, good works, and merits 
of all the Miriam priests and brothers around the world. And now you can share the graces just as if you were a Miriam priest or brother. Every All Souls Day, we say a mass for all the deceased members of the Association of Marian Helpers. Again, there's no way that after we die, we can help ourselves, but we have to rely on the prayers of those here on earth. And we members of the Marian Fathers will be praying for you as a deceased member of our association. You can share in the graces of the perpetual novena to the divine mercy. Remember Jesus told St. Faustina that the chaplet of divine mercy is one of the most powerful prayers we can make. And every day here at the shrine of divine mercy, we pray it and you can share in those graces. So if you have any questions or you wanna learn more how to be a Marian helper, please visit micprayers.com or call 1-800-462-7426 and let me personally pray for you and your loved ones. Thank you and may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content, which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit DivineMercyPlus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's DivineMercyPlus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily Masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.